0: Father, thank you that you brought us here this morning. We thank you for uh, this church and all the ways you you bless us through it. I ask this morning that you, uh, again, as we do every uh, Sunday, ask that you give us open ears and hearts and minds to hear your word. And I pray that you help me as I preach it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one day uh, during the the first year of Jesus' ministry... Jesus was teaching inside, inside a house, uh, the same house where he was staying in, in Capernaum during that whole, that whole year. There was a, a huge crowd there, a lot of people inside the house, and then the crowd was so great that they started spilling out the front door, and there was a crowd by the front door, and there, was, there were probably lots of people at the windows. Uh, so if you showed up late to hear Jesus teach, you wouldn't be able to get in. you probably want to sit outside and hope that Jesus preaches loud enough for you to be able to hear. But if you decided to do that, if you decided not to just walk home, but to stay there and see if you could could listen standing outside, at some point on this particular day, you would have seen a group of men, four of them, carrying a stretcher, hurrying down down the street uh, toward the house where Jesus was teaching. And if you were close enough, if you happened to get close enough to the the men carrying the stretcher, you would have noticed a fifth man. And if you were close enough to see that fifth man, you'd have noticed that he didn't have any open wounds on his body, no no obvious injuries. His eyes are probably open. His face is is alert. But if you got a glimpse, if you happened to get a glimpse of, of his legs... You would have noticed they're thin. Not thin like he's starving, but thin like he's never used them. No shape to them, no, no, no muscle uh, there that you can see. And, and that's because the man's a, a paralytic. The four men who are carrying his stretcher would approach, they did approach, the crowded door, and nobody moves aside to, to let them in. They try pushing their way in, and no one makes way. But there's a, there's a flight of stairs uh, leading up to the roof. Uh, there were, in most houses, there were flights of stairs and outside leading up to the roof because families would do their chores there in the cool of the day often. And so the four men, bearing the, the man on his stretcher, uh, clamber up the stairs. They set the man down, and they start peeling up the roof. Uh, which was made of mud tiles, Luke tells us. Mud tiles in the roofs. They started peeling up the mud tiles. And before long, they've got a hole large enough for a man and a stretcher. Now, you have to wonder, as this was going on, you have to wonder what it was like inside if you were in there listening uh, listening to Jesus preach because there he is in mid-sermon and and there's debris uh, falling everywhere. And, And then this gaping hole opens up in the ceiling. How'd you like to be the homeowner the, the guy who owns the house' or just sitting there and suddenly this uh, the, your roof is being torn apart well before anyone could stop these guys they they, they the, the stretcher is being lowered down I guess on ropes until it rests on the ground at, at, at jesus's feet and the man's just lying there in the stretcher looking up looking up at jesus and again if i if if I were the homeowner at, at this point I'd want Jesus to say something like What's wrong with you people? You can't just go around opening up people's uh, roofs and lowering people people, people through them. You need to clean this stuff up and get it fixed and pay for it because this is a lot of damage you've done here. But that's not what Jesus says. When Jesus saw their faith, Mark tells us, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we saw their faith. They had heard that Jesus can open the eyes of the blind and make the deaf hear. They had heard that he cleanses lepers. And the man knew, the the paralytic knew, I've got to get to him. If I can get to him, if I can get to to this Jesus, he is is going to make me walk. No one else can do it. He can do it. And And so they set off. And when they got there, they didn't let the crowded house at the, or the crowded door, they didn't let the stairs, they didn't let the, the mud tiles on the roof or anything else stop them. And Jesus, seeing they had come come to him, okay, they, little, they committed a little bit of vandalism, I see that, but, but Jesus, seeing they had come to him, believing that he had and has hands that heal and words that save, seeing that they trusted that he would not turn them away, seeing all that, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, do you think the man was disappointed at this point? I mean, Because he didn't come, he wasn't thinking, I'm going to go have Jesus forgive my sins. He was thinking, I'm going to go have Jesus heal my legs. It's a little bit like that poor lame beggar outside the beautiful gate when Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold. And you know, his heart just sank. Did the same thing happen for this, for this paralytic? Well, we can't answer that for sure. But I, something tells me I don't think so. Something tells me not. The man knows he can't walk because the dead weight of his, of his legs tell, tell him that. But, but as Jesus looks down into his eyes and reads his heart and knows his mind, I think his heart and his mind and his conscience tell him that he needs more than anything else to hear those words, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when Jesus said that, and if you know if you've read the story, uh, some in the room didn't like it at all, and so they said to themselves, and that is they said silently in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? but God alone. And that's right. They were right. Only God can forgive sins. And only God can know hearts and see words, hear words that are unspoken. So Jesus looked at those people and he said, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk. Now, it's easier. It is much easier to say, your sins are forgiven. It's easier because you can't see sins being forgiven. You can say, your sins are forgiven all day, and nobody can see whether or not the sins are forgiven. That's an easy easy thing to say. But you see, you you tell a paralytic, get up and walk, everyone can see the results of that. If you tell the paralytic to get up and walk, you better have the power to pull it off. But if you're just going to say your sins are forgiven, uh, you can say that all day. And how can anyone know it's done? How are you going to back up your words? How can you show if you're Jesus, which you're not, neither am I, but how can you show in in Jesus' place that you have the power and the authority that belongs to God alone. Well, that you may know, Jesus says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did. He just got up. He picked up his bed, picked up his mat, and went home healed and forgiven. Uh, Jesus heals the sick. He cures the lame. He makes the deaf hear and the blind see because he has deep compassion for them and he, he loves the bodies that he's given, he's given to them. But he also does it, and this is the greater purpose, to reveal that he comes, Jesus comes with the authority And the power of God to administer, administer the true cure, the great medicine that sinks into the soul and brings a kind of healing that no sickness or infirmity or grief can ever kill off. Salvation. The forgiveness of sins, the justification of sinners. Now you might wonder if you were here last week. Um, you might wonder, you know, why, did, why did Matt start off with the healing of a paralytic back in Mark chapter 2 when you know, just last week Peter healed a lame beggar in Acts chapter 3? Why not, why not start there? And I could have started there, but I started with the paralytic in Mark chapter 2 because nowhere else in the New Testament, nowhere else in the Gospels or in Acts is the bond and connection between Jesus' power to heal and his power to save made so clear. Jesus spoke life into dead limbs and sightless eyes in order to reveal to you his power and his authority to grant eternal life. Because that's true, it should come as no surprise then that that when Peter fixed his gaze on the lame beggar, at the beautiful gate and said, rise up, and he took him by his outstretched arm and raised him up on healthy feet, suddenly healthy feet, it should come as no surprise that that would not be that. That Peter wouldn't just say, oh, have a wonderful life and walk off. That he'd not just send the man on his way. No, because the man, even though he now has healthy legs, he's going to die someday. As will all the people in that temple on that day. Healthy bodies or not. A healthy body is a wonderful thing to have. I hope you all have it. But it doesn't last. If you don't die early of some disease or some kind of tragic accident, you're going to get old. And your body is going to break down. And then what? You need a better cure. The lame beggar needs a better cure than just healthy legs. We left him last week walking and and leaping and praising God in the temple. And if you look down at verse 11 of chapter 3 of Acts, you'll see that the man now has stopped his leaping and jumping about. In verse 11, he clung to Peter and John. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. uh, if you, the, the, the geography of the temple is, is that the Solomon's portico is, is in the, the Gentile court, which is just outside the temple precincts. So if you remember back up in verse 8, they had gone into the temple. Now they've come out. Thousands of people know who this is. They, they pass by him every day at that gate, begging, uh, sitting there. They know who he is. That's why all the people are running together to them, utterly astounded. How did this happen? What's this about? So Peter and John and the man, they're being mobbed. And I think that's why Peter and John have made their way to Solomon's portico. You can fit thousands of people in that place, in the the, the Gentile court. You can fit thousands of people in the Gentile court, and you can preach to them from Solomon's portico. Now, I want you to notice that Luke tells us the man clings to Peter and John. You might ask, why? Has there been a relapse? Did Jesus just, I mean, did they heal him and he got better and he jumped around and ooh, got injured again and now he's got to cling, to cling to Peter and John? Well, no, that's not what's happened. When Jesus heals you, uh, you're healed. When Jesus saves you, you're saved. Nothing reverses that. There's no relapses. So, why does this man cling to them? We can't answer that question definitively, but I have an idea. I told you uh, many times that I first heard the gospel. I had been told the gospel many times, but I first heard the gospel on the radio from Dr. R.C. Sproul, who sadly has now passed on. Uh, But for a long time after I first heard the gospel from R.C. Sproul, my Christian diet, the things that I fed myself on, except for the Bible, was almost entirely R.C. Sproul. I I listened to his sermons over and over again. I bought his books and read them over and over again. I I read articles from him over and over again. I couldn't get enough of R.C. Sproul. I clung to him like a newborn. Jesus, of course, gave me new birth, not R.C. Sproul, but but Jesus did it through R.C. Sproul. So I stuck close to him as close to him as I could, because I knew this man, I didn't know him personally, I mean I stuck close to him like reading and stuff, but I knew this man knows Jesus, who healed me, and, and, and he can, this man can tell me about Jesus. I think that's what's going on here. An hour before he met Peter and John, this man thought that he would never walk, and then Peter looked at him and said in the name of of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up. And now he's got strength coursing through his legs. Now, I don't know what this man knew about Jesus before that moment, but he's just been made whole in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So, of course, he's clinging to Peter and John. They know the man who healed him. And they, he wants to keep his Grip on them. Now, um, Peter may not, Peter may not have known that he was scheduled to preach that day. He didn't. Don't have any idea. He went to the temple with plans. I think I'm going to go to the temple and preach a sermon to thousands, to thousands of people. His plan was probably, I'm going to go to the afternoon hour of prayer, and then I'm going to come home. But as you know, if you're a Christian, we make plans, Jesus laughs, and he does his own thing. You couldn't ask, however, if you were Peter, you couldn't ask for a better sermon introduction. Peter doesn't need to wonder, how am I going to grab their attention? Why should they listen to anything I have to say? Jesus has solved that problem with the man who is lame, who's, who's clinging to them. And so, verse 12, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? Now, if you've been coming to Good Shepherd for any length of time, even, you know, maybe two weeks even, you probably know this. Uh, you know what I think about the phrase, uh, preach the gospel always, sometimes use words. People say that Fr- St. Francis said that originally. He didn't. St. Francis preached to uh, woodland creatures. So he's not a guy who would say, don't use words when you're preaching. He, he wouldn't have said it. wasn't St. Francis. But you've heard that phrase probably. You've heard similar sounding phrases. Uh, your good works, I heard this one recently, your good works are the only sermon some people will ever hear. And are, that's a nice sentiment. I, I, I think it sounds really good. But let's play that sentiment out And see what happens. What happens if Peter here says nothing? The crowd uh, gathers, they see the man healed, they're amazed, utterly amazed, and he's clinging on to Peter and and John, and, and they're saying, What happened? How did this happen? And Peter just smiles, waves, and walks on. What happens in that case? Are the people going to conclude, oh, well, it must have been Jesus. Jesus must have done it. No, they're not going to conclude that at all. In fact, they already, you can see it there, that's why Peter's having to deny it, they already assume Peter has done it. By his power and his piety. So when you you feed someone who's hungry or you visit somebody in the hospital or whatever good thing it might be, uh, people don't just... uh, just automatically connect the dots to Jesus. Unless you're wearing a collar, but you don't wear a collar unless you get one. But they don't connect the dots to Jesus automatically. I want people to think that Good Shepherd is a place where people who don't have much can come and be taken care of. But I want people to know that that's true because of Jesus of Nazareth. That people are fed here in his name. People are helped here in his, his name. We do whatever good that we do by his grace and through his power and by his will and by his authority. Jesus is the, is the true bread. Jesus is the, is the true vine. Jesus is the one you truly need. I think that Peter is about to say just that. Don't look at us, look at, look at, look at Jesus. In fact, he is saying just that. It's not us. We don't have the power to make a lame person walk, and it's not our piety either. Jesus hasn't uh, granted this healing because he was impressed by our holiness. If if Jesus tooled around Galilee or Jerusalem or anywhere else in the whole world, even even now, handing out healings on the basis of who's been holy, there'd be no healings. If he granted eternal life uh, to those pious enough to attain it, nobody would attain it. It has to be free. It has to be given freely, or nobody could receive it. And so it is. Now, uh, except for the 3,120-plus people who have believed in Jesus and been baptized, everyone else believes in Jerusalem... uh, or everyone, when they think of Jesus, if they do, in Jerusalem, thinks of Jesus as a man who claimed great things. I'm, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Most recently, if they remembered anything, they would have remembered what he claimed during the public trial, uh, that he is the Christ, and that one day he said, you'll see me coming on the clouds, uh, the hosts of heaven behind me. and And they would have... Remember that he performed miracles that seemed to back up his words, but they would have also thought, they would also think at this point that his words didn't pan out and his claims didn't pan out because the Sanhedrin condemned him as a blasphemer, empowered not by God, but by demons, and God, they would think, confirmed the Sanhedrin's judgment. Because everyone knows, we've said this many times, everyone knows that to be crucified, to be hung on a tree, is to be cursed by God. That's what the law says. So Jesus of Nazareth, this crowd would think, was a counterfeit. So when we cried out for his blood, that was the right thing to do. We were justified in doing it. That was months ago. I don't think they have Jesus in their mind right now. That was all months ago. Uh, what they have in mind is this astounding thing right before their eyes. This lame man, this, this beggar. We've all seen him. We all know who he is. We've all seen him sitting in that gate and now he walks and he's clinging to these Galileans like a newborn baby. What's happened? What's going on? And Peter has the answer there in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, excuse me, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. This man walks because God has overturned your verdict about Jesus. Jesus is seated at God's right hand. That's what, when, that's what that word glorified means, that God is exalted, he's glorified Jesus, seated at him his right hand, and that Jesus, by his power and his authority, that's been granted to him by his father, has raised this man up. That's the point that, Jesus, that Peter's making. Uh, pay attention to that phrase, glorified his servant. Do you see it? The crowd would recognize that phrase. You and I probably don't. I didn't recognize it at first when I just read it, but they would probably recognize it. It's, a, it's an allusion. It's, from, it's an allusion to a biblical text. It's from Isaiah 52, 13, and I'll read it to you. There God says, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. God, looking into the future through Isaiah, Uh, predicting, prophesying what's going to happen in the future through through Isaiah's mouth and his pen in Isaiah 52, says, my servant is coming and my servant shall be exalted. Peter is saying, by alluding to that text, God's servant, Jesus, has been exalted. That's why you see what you're seeing. God has fulfilled that prophecy, and that prophecy was about Jesus. And as they would know very well, maybe you know it too, there's more to that prophecy. Uh, I'll read another section of it to you. He, that's the servant, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Do you hear that? We, that's, that's Israel, this is Isaiah, 500 years before the fact, 700 years before the fact, we esteemed him, that's the servant, smitten by God and afflicted. That's cursed by God. They did. That's what the people listening to Peter thought when they saw Jesus Hanging on the cross. He's cursed by God. He's afflicted. God cursed him. And he did, we know. God did curse him there. Jesus became the curse. But what the crowd missed, what Israel missed, is why? To what end was he afflicted? But maybe it's beginning to dawn on some who, who recognize the illusion. Maybe it's beginning to dawn on some of them. If this Jesus is the servant God promised to glorify, God promised to exalt in Isaiah 52, then he's also the servant who suffers in Isaiah 53. The one despised whom we esteemed not. Peter's putting it together for them. He's, he's connecting the dots for them. God has exalted his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Now, if you read the Gospels, all four of them, you'll, you'll read about Pilate. He's, he's in there, the governor, and uh, Pilate is a weak man. He's a coward. Uh, ultimately, Pilate's willing to, to put an innocent man to death to save his, to save his own skin. But before he does that... Pilate, the Gentile, tried to save Jesus' life. The people wouldn't have it. The the, the last attempt, the last throw of the dice for Pilate was when he trotted out that murderer, Barabbas, and everyone knew Barabbas was a murderer. He wasn't just a a revolutionary. They understood he had committed murder and was therefore worthy of of death. Um, And Pilate said, do you want Jesus... Or do you would, would you want this murderer, Barabbas? And, and they said, give us Barabbas. You all know the story. the Gentile governor tried to release Jesus, but you, verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. That's a, that's a fascinating phrase, the author of life. You killed the author of life. That is, You killed the one who creates life, where there is no life. And and for those who are hearing Peter say that, the proof that Jesus is the author of life is standing again right there. The beggar's legs were dead. They were useless. They all saw it. Who can create living, strong muscle tissue where there is none? Who can uh, create pathways in a man's brain so that uh, even though he's been lame from, from birth, he immediately leaps into the air and doesn't fall on his face? Not the guys with their shiny suits on TBN. This is a creation-level miracle. Only God can do this sort of thing. And Jesus did it. He's the author of life. You killed the author of life. How can that even happen? How can the author of life suffer death? Well, we we know how that happened. The, The author of life joined himself to human nature in all its fullness except for sin so that he might get himself over to death. But that doesn't excuse the fact they killed him. Peter here is... Playing, and he he has to. Peter here is playing the prosecutor. These people must come to terms with what they've done. Now, I suppose uh, Peter could have preached a more positive message, and you can see how he might have done that. Uh, God has exalted, he might he might say, God has exalted his servant Jesus, who has healed this man. Do you want to be healed? Do you want a healing? Uh, That man was lame. Uh, That was holding him back from living a a good life. Uh, What circumstances are holding you back? Where are the lame legs in your life? Jesus will heal them. And if Peter had preached something like that, you can imagine people would have left, left the, the, the Gentile court thinking, oh, what, a, what an uplifting message that was! What an encouragement that was! I'm so glad we went to the temple today. I heard a great, encouraging, hopeful message." But if Peter had done that, he would be preaching peace where there's no peace, and you don't you don't ever want that. That never helps. When a preacher tells you that everything is well when everything is not well, that preacher isn't your friend. If a friend is helping you do that, that's not your friend. The preacher who tells you everything's well when everything is not well is giving you ibuprofen when you need a heart transplant. He's taking the edge off the pain slightly, but until you see and deal with the diseased heart, you're still sick unto death. You you need to hear the truth. I need to hear the truth. These people haven't yet seen the depth of their infirmity. And Peter, because he loves them, tells them the truth. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be given to you. What an exchange that is. The guilty man goes free the righteous one takes the guilty one's place. Now, that was an evil thing what these people did. Uh, the most evil thing ever done in all, in all his, the history of the world. But I want you to notice that as Peter is leveling that indictment, I want you to notice that title, The Righteous One. See it? That's another allusion to the same passage. Isaiah 52 and 53. And I'll read the, the section in particular. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, that's the servant, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. The, the indictment that Peter's laying down and, and, and the accusation that he's making against these people, it's hard. It's unbearable even. You denied the Holy One, the Righteous One. But even in the accusation, the first hints of, of dawn begin to peek over the horizon. The Righteous One, my servant, out of the anguish of his soul, the anguish you caused him, he shall make many, to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. So you, you killed him, and then he continues, verse fifteen: the God raised him from the dead, and to this were witnesses. Now, when Easter rolls around, I love Easter. It's one of my favorite times. It's not as, I'm not as happy on Easter as on Christmas because you get more presents than Christmas. But when Easter rolls around, it's still it's a nice time to have a good time. When you come to church, you put on your nice clothes. I do anyway. And, and you, the music here is happy on Easter day. And there's gold vestments and incense. And I know some of you don't like incense, but you will later. You get to heaven. There'll be a lot of incense there. And, you get, and you get, it's, a, it's a happy day. Easter is a very fun day because we're remembering Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the tomb being empty and the fact that he's crushed death under his, under, under his feet. But to these people, the people that Peter's preaching to, the resurrection is not good news. Not yet. Not unless they've been tracking with all of Peter's allusions to Isaiah 52 and 53 and the suffering servant. Because if they have not been tracking with those allusions, all they have is this. You murdered God's son and he's back. <laughs> you murdered God's son and now he rules over everything. And if you don't believe it, we'll explain how this man with with lame legs walks in Jesus' name. It's not the resurrection is not good news yet. Peter's driving them toward the good news, but it's not good news yet. He wants these people right now, to see and feel the burden of of their guilt. And he wants you and me, regularly, to see that too. So that you won't ever fool yourself into thinking, if I just try harder, I can get up. No, he wants you to know you can't. But also to know there's a a cure for you. There's a balm for you and for everyone who turns to him, to Jesus. So so what Peter doesn't want is he doesn't want these people lying there in their stretchers, straining muscles they don't have. He wants them to make their way to Jesus. And the only way they're going to do that is when they realize they have nothing else and no other hope. So he says in verse 16, in his name... By faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And the grammar here is really strange. It's hard to translate. And it's strange, I think, because Peter is trying to to fit language around what he wants these people to hear more than anything else. And what you and I need to hear more than anything else. Peter is saying, John and I did Nothing. But trust in Jesus. Jesus raised this man up. And the faith, the the trust that led me to say to the man sitting there at the gate, in in utter weakness, in the name of Jesus, rise up. That faith, that was also through and from Jesus. He gave me to know, Jesus gave me to know, and to believe that he would do it. From beginning to end, it's, it's, it's from Jesus. Through faith in him. You don't want to read this and think that Peter is saying that the the faith in itself is is anything, or that faith itself did anything. Uh, Faith or, or trust won't get you anything if you're trusting in something that can't help you. But if you know that Jesus has drawn near and that he's the author of life, and you know that you've got blood on your hands. You know that guilt for your sins is crushing you to the ground. And you know that you have no hope in anyone else. And you go to him, not letting any crowd at the door or tile on the roof stop you, because he said, Come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll cure your sickness. When you go to him, however far off you've been, however near, whether you've been a Christian for thirty-some odd years or you're not one yet, if you go to Him and when you go to Him, He will see you and He'll say, "My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven," and He'll bear your iniquities away and He'll count you among the righteous. Let's stop here and pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son with the, who is Himself the true medicine who cures our souls. One day he'll raise our bodies. Lord, we ask you to give us the confidence to go to him, um, regardless of what we've done, where we've been, not concealing our sin or justifying it, but confessing and knowing that he keeps his promises and that he's done all that is necessary to cleanse and heal and restore us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who may not yet believe in Jesus, that you might turn that person's heart and mind to your son and bring that person to faith and heal that person or people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.